You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. I'm Dan Gable, Technology Manager for the LRC. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language, one recent project at the Language Resource Center has been to archive a substantial number of vintage language-related tapes, many of which were recorded at Cornell. Dick Feldman, director of the Language Resource Center, talks about the process of dealing with this rare material. So in talking with the Cornell Library, they agreed with me that this was reasonable and legitimate uh, uh, intellectual material produced uh, according to norms of the time and representing uh, uh, teaching and intellectual practice of the time and uh, just for those reasons should be preserved even though we wouldn't teach uh, uh, language exactly that way now right um, but as you say some of the even though as you say some of the ideas of, of drill and dialogue that were introduced then and were unknown before then it should be said um, uh, continue today so there so there's a there's a there isn't a complete break there's a continuity of development from those times until today and that's another reason why they should be preserved dick what can you tell us about these recordings um, these are tapes made in the 60s 70s and maybe a little bit of the 80s on reel to reel tape Maybe you've seen a, a picture of such a thing. Right. So we've had to uh, search around to get equipment and keep it in order ourselves. But that's the way people recorded stuff back then. And this is from the era of the audiolingual method. Um, and maybe some people have heard of that. It's a way of teaching language that we don't do anymore, but it was a product of its time, really. And uh, those times were... After the um, uh, war in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, really, as I said, that was under the sway of, the, of ideas of uh, behaviorism, that people learn things by simply, simply by repetition, hmm. and um, not so much about the communicative or identity features of language and use in language learning. So... That material comes out looking kind of really old-fashioned and to some people kind of senseless back then. And that's why uh, there hasn't been that much attention to preserving this material. And I think we're one of the few pe places in the world that has uh, an organized set of materials from those, of language teaching materials from those years. And that's why I was concerned about preserving it. Sure. Um, a lot of people may not know what the audiolingual method was, but the, the, the idea was, as I said, that, peop that people learn through repetition, not so much by making things make sense so much. So um, uh, I have a, a couple of examples, say, from a, a Russian course that still use some. Here was an example of, a, uh, uh, of two lines that uh, students would repeat. Is that a pen or a pencil? Is that a glass or a cup? Hmm. Well, you know, where are you when we say that? Right, right. What's the context? Yeah, we don't know. A pen or pencil, glass or cup? Are we at the table? Are we at a desk? Are we even anybody? 
uh, what, what's, what's going on here. And here's some other examples from an English uh, uh, series of the time. Um, so you would just repeat these. We didn't ask them to walk. We didn't ask them to work. We didn't ask him to attend the concert. Did you want them to walk? No, I didn't want them to walk. So the teacher might say the first sentence, and the student would be asked to give the negative response. Did you want them to work? No, I didn't want them to work. Did you want him to attend the concert? No, I didn't want him to attend the concert. So here we would call these focus on form, hmm. not focus on meaning. Right. And in modern times in language teaching, we think that focus on form, uh, attention to the grammar, the pronunciation, and so forth of language should be done in a meaning context. Right. So, for example, um, I was just looking at some similar forms in a modern book. So you might take the students and say, well, let's say you're at a restaurant for breakfast. And you might include some other forms, some other functional language is another thing. Or what do you think would happen when you sit down at a uh, breakfast table in a restaurant? Right. You might look at the menu. So you might, so the teacher might have a menu. You'd look over some of the vocabulary. You'd talk about some of the words, and the students would check up on the pronunciation of the words. And then here comes the um, uh, 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 waiter or waitress, and you see that there are two possible drinks offered, and the waitress says, would you like coffee or tea? So that's actually, a, a, in English, a, a, a subtle and a special kind of intonation pattern where you have alternatives like that. But we would introduce all that in, in, in a, as I say, in a meaning context. And um, would you like eggs or pancakes? Right. Can you hear how the intonation is going there? Right, right. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da. Yeah. So there's a rise on the one alternative and then a fall on the on, at the end of the sentence. So there is stuff to learn there, but a kind of insistence on the form. You have to get that right. No, 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 that's not it. Repeat, repeat after me. Hmm. You know, we don't need to do that much either because, you know, what's so terrible about if somebody says, would you like coffee or tea? As opposed to, would you like coffee or tea? You know, the point gets across. Sure. And um, uh, whereas that might be our, our teaching point for that moment, that intonation pattern, um, preserving the sense of communication, of reality, of the uh, uh, context is more important. The sense that the student actually can communicate stuff and can understand that um, all those features are more important than immediately getting getting that just right. And there might be homework and other things that would reinforce it that help help the, the student move to more toward more accuracy. But in class we don't just drill the form point with no regard for meaning and no tolerance for uh, error like that. So that's that's a, that's some important differences that have happened uh, in language teaching uh, over the last uh, 
you know, 40 years. But would you say this audiolingual approach, would you say that's uh, still, is that still a part of what what we do now in teaching at all? I mean, is uh, when you talk about this context and meaning, is that not adding on to the uh, a potential drill? And we certainly see drills and uh, uh, a focus on form to some degree. Yes. Uh, I think it's the jumping around with absolutely no context that we uh, really don't do anymore. And that's what's uh, the substance of a lot of these reels. Is, is... Some, some, of them, some of them are where it's really about... Um, uh, the form itself and without any, without much attention to meaning. I mean, the assumption is that uh, students uh, understand still what they're saying, but they have to kind of jump around. So he wants to learn to dance well. Mm-hmm. She, and the student has to say, she wants to learn to dance well. I, I want to learn to dance well. So you know, students did learn language, the fact is, sure. from this kind of drill. A lot of students did learn, and a lot of students with our modern methods uh, still find it difficult and sometimes unsuccessful. Mm. So we can't say that we've solved every every language teaching problem, but we do think that an attention to meaning and context and identity are important in language learning. At the same time, this was... Uh, legitimate, real social historical practice of its time, and I'm glad it's uh, we've we've arranged for these materials to be preserved. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about the how how they are being preserved. Uh, I mean, our, our initial approach was to see um, what material was deemed valuable. Um, mostly, that was a judgment call on your part, and I'm sure. Um, it's very difficult to determine what exact you know. It's very difficult to figure out what's on all these reels without listening to every single one of them. There's a lot of stuff buried in there. Absolutely, and I was struggling making distinctions. Uh, should we just preserve material created at Cornell? Right. Should we throw out other stuff, even though these may be the only available copies of a lot of those materials from that era? Right. So, in talking with the Cornell Library. They agreed with me that this was reasonable and legitimate uh, uh, intellectual material produced uh, according to norms of the time and representing uh, uh, teaching and intellectual practice of the time and uh, just for those reasons should be preserved, even though we wouldn't teach uh, uh, language exactly that way now. Right. Um, but as you say, some of the, even though as you say, some of the ideas of, of drill and dialogue that were introduced then and were unknown before then, it should be said, um, uh, continue today. So there, so there's a, there's a, there isn't a complete break. There's a continuity of development from those times until today, and that's another reason why they should be preserved. I wonder what, who, what sort of person or what sort of interest uh, would be asking about a particular title or a particular reel, uh, can you think of? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Of course, if you start looking into what libraries do, you might have difficulty finding, deciding exactly who's going to look at a lot of that stuff. Yeah, of course. So I would think it would be a graduate student who's interested in the history of language teaching. 
um, and uh, who is studying the development of the, these ideas. You know, where did the practice of, of, of modeling and then repeating dialogues come from? And what does a drill mean? So you might want to go back to where did this where did this first come from? What are the different types there have been over the years? So I think it would be graduate students or uh, you, you know researchers who who want to look into the history and development of of, of this kind of uh, educational practice. Right. I mean, I, I guess in a way, it's sort of a uh, there's a museum aspect uh, to this as well. Just the idea of having a place where someone can kind of browse. A few titles. Do you think that's going to be a possibility that somebody could go to a web page and uh, and just sort of see what's available um, to, in some way? Yes, I hope so. And I plan to uh, work with the library some to uh, help them present it in a way that would be attractive and informative to people, and maybe help develop uh, somebody's somebody's interest in this in this era. You know what's the difference between a museum and a library? Right. Um, it's a a a, a, a subtle thing. Uh, yeah. Really. So I I think this really belongs in a library in that it's something that somebody might want to study and learn about and sure. do research on to, sure. to understand better. Yeah. So that's these materials are going to be. Um, uh, preserved from this tradition of language teaching that's kind of has a special history here at Cornell, and I'm very pleased at that. Yeah, that's it's great news. Um, I'll admit I was a little bit doubtful on uh, on the outcome of this project. I I just wasn't sure what we were going to do. I kind of thought uh, we'd end up with a storeroom filled with boxes again that we just kind of let sit for a while. So this solution is kind of a dream come true, really. Yes. Well, I had looked all around the country. I'd asked major national organizations about it, and everybody kind of thought it was a good idea, but they didn't want to do it, maintain an archive sure. of, this, of this sort of thing. So it makes sense that it's our own yeah. local, very large and... Uh, uh, you know, well-enabled uh, uh, Cornell Library that uh, is uh, taking taking the reins here and uh, preserving it, since a lot of it, a good share of what we have is in fact Cornell faculty-produced material. Teachers can produce materials that are useful to their students. This is uh, teacher-produced stuff. You don't have to wait for some uh, big uh, institution to do it, even though it is a commitment on the part of a teacher, but it's a way of focusing uh, their own uh, uh, work and uh, really delivering the best experience and up-to-date experience to their students. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Sam Lukowitz and Dan Gable. Recorded by Sam Lukowitz. Original music by Sam Lukowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson.